Okay, welcome Daniela to this conversation with me and Alan. We are so happy to to have you here. We looked a little bit as you do before you start talking to someone. Who is this person according to Google? And I think we found a couple of different ones. I'll read them out, and then we'll we'll let you explain what you actually are and who you are. Sounds scary. So you're a director of Responsible AI, you're a research manager in augmented human interaction, mm-hmm. head of social dynamics at Nokia Bell Labs, and professor of urban informatics, King's College London. So are all of those correct? No, because the Bell Labs ones, the three ones is like a sort of a kind of progression or random uh, titles that they're given when uh, you have a team and then that gets uh, in a different organization structure, et cetera, et cetera. So you, that changes the name. I think the research is a social and empathic computing. That was a decision not taken by entirely me. And I couldn't understand exactly what was meant by empathic computing. So whereas now I understand the kind of responsible, I think. So it's more what, what I do in Bell Labs. And then urban informatics, uh, it's something that I do at King's uh, on a part-time basis. So I keep on doing my urban research as a patient and responsible AI is a some kind of central area of research at the moment. So your main position is at uh, Nokia Bell then? Correct. Okay. And how much are you at King's? Is that just affiliation or do you have some time there? No, I have a a tiny percentage of time. All right. In this podcast, we're talking about human-centered AI. And within this large umbrella term of human-centered AI, there's very many things in your titles that link to this. Among those is urban informatics. Do you see any links between... Uh, human-centered AI approaches, perspectives, models, and uh, the type of uh, work in urban informatics that you do? Yes, I I do. And that was uh, the frustration when we started to work many years ago about urban stuff, because back in the days, now it's not the case anymore, but back in the days, it was all about smart cities. If you remember, and it was all about efficiency, right? People would go in a city because it's efficient to get from point A to point B. You feel secure because you have uh, the kindly provided uh, CCTV cameras around you, so security from cameras. And then you're always going to go to the grocery shop. You find zero queues there. So that's a kind of idea of smart city. That bothered me a lot, especially... I was kind of passionate about background in urban sociology and in urban sociology, there is nothing about this kind of efficiency and this kind of, that makes your life great in a city, right? So there are good things to have if you don't have congestion, if you have zero crime, etc. But what makes a city great? There are other things. And generally those are human uh, kind of things that are intangible. And the main reason why a lot of quantitative research went into this kind of efficiency stuff is because you can measure, right? So you can measure travel time, you can measure walking time, and that's why it was embedded inside algorithms. So we were losing all the other sides. So why people move in the city? Because of opportunities that the city offers, or because the quality of life. But then as a computer scientist, we would say, we don't have the ground truth, we cannot measure quality of life, etc. So we spent quite a few years to figure out, can we measure these intangible properties? Like, can we measure 
how do I perceive a street while I stand there? Do I perceive it as a beautiful street, uh, as an ugly street? How my senses perceive that street, right? So that what's the order of the street? What is the sound of the street? And can you profile that uh, at the entire city level with new data like social media, people taking pictures, etc., or crowdsourcing techniques? So, so really the idea of human-centered computing was at the basis of my frustration for all the urban research that was before, right? Because they were all about efficiency and very little about why people make certain choices of living in a city. So was urban informatics your response to smart cities? Uh, my uh, version of urban informatics was the response to smart cities, right? So then urban informatics is a thing was a lot taught um, from this kind of transport engineering perspective uh, and smart city and sensor perspective. That That's my take is a bit, it's a bit orthogonal to the other takes. So much so that I don't have a community uh, around me in a way, right? So because I do publish, but I struggle sometimes to publish in conferences where I've been for, for many years because of the usual problems like this is anomalous as a problem i don't understand why you need to map smell or odors inside the city in architecture as well we don't plan around odors but then there is a thesis five years ago for the first time in architecture saying you can plan around energizing odors in certain parts of the city and calming odors in other parts of the city and there are a few cities around the world that plan like that especially the public spaces so there are these things that are starting, but you don't have a community around you. So you just struggle a bit and you publish what you believe is cool and you go for it. But that's not the classical urban informatics uh, take on, on cities. For me, your work in cityscaping or city analysis, this type of work is super cool. And it's just so fascinating to see the things you can do. Much of the computational HCI type of work is done on apps or on the interaction with digital devices. You're doing the human-centered aspect, but interacting with the city. And that's just so fascinating. I understand the methods you're using as a computer scientist. I, I can recognize and understand, but just the challenges you must be facing with working with a city or with society rather than here's my users in an app. I understand it's challenging. It must also be super rewarding to see that work having impact. Yeah, yeah. No, it's pretty cool because, I mean, once I was sitting in a big conference where all the chairs of the different trucks of this conference were, and there used to be an urban computing truck in that conference, and I was deciding not to have that truck anymore. And the reason that was given to that meeting is that, you know, the city kind of research is going to die. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to answer to that because I, I mean, do I care? But I was thinking, well, cities have been a, around millions of years and they're not going to disappear. And all the problems we are going to face, they are going to be to a certain extent amplified or even resolved in cities, right? So cities are super linearly scaled problems and solutions, right? Innovation and and the spread of diseases, cities are super power for that. And a lot of things that you can see that's super cool at the moment in urban research is all around climate tech. 
So there are tons of startups uh, and tons of little groups starting to think about how can we tackle some of the problems around climate with cities. And that's super cool to see because cities are a breeding ground for uh, researchers. It's absolutely different than the typical climate tech research that's going on right now. So it's good to see. It's a nice test bed, let's say. I guess cities are like beer. They are the cause and solution to many problems. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, beers also historically, they've been the solution of drinking purified water, right? When pure water or non-contaminated water was not available. When thinking of your work, just in the last few years, you publish at ICWSM, you publish at FACT, at uh, Mobile HCI, you publish in sociology, you publish so broadly. So it's, it is a testament of that type of work being important in so many fields and linking to what you said that you don't really have a community but you're creating that community right Some... i don't think i have many people following me so <laughs> <laughs> so i don't think there is a community around me at all right so there are uh, a few people in computer science if you think about it and i'm and surprised every year uh, but uh, every year there is a paper on predicting uh, the next place right where i'm gonna go next and then you have a new data set which is totally fine, you know, but, you know, one year, two years, three years, five years, six years, every time in this big conference, this is the next place to predict. It's a bit frustrating because we could do so much as computer scientists, right? So if you think you have OpenStreetMap, right? So you have a description of a place and in that description, it tells you when is closed, when is open, what kind of place it is, right? So there you can take urban sociology approach and you can say, look, I can measure whether this part of the neighborhood is activated throughout 24 hours. Because if it's activated throughout 24 hours, day and night, that means crime should be low. So the expectation, is it uh, a mixed neighborhood where you have a diversity of places? So you can look at all this richness stuff that is connected to a potential outcomes for people. That is a lost opportunity, I think, not to merge these two disciplines, urban sociology and, and computer science. I'm, I'm not sure there is a community around, but there are a few people doing super cool stuff. And uh, sometimes I meet them in conference and they say, oh, I read your paper and I started to do that. And I say, yes, uh, that's super cool. And it's nice, a great satisfaction. Also the satisfaction to see that, yeah, some papers are accepted in computer science conferences uh, because, I don't know, the reviewers uh, were a bit tipsy, maybe with beers or stuff. But then the, the super cool thing is to see that people in architecture and planning actually cite those papers more predominantly than computer scientists. So that means computer science were okay with the methodology, but then the impact was in another field. And, and that's super cool to see. So I like that part as well. But, but then there is the counterpart. The people I work with, they are generally super frustrated, not because of necessarily me, maybe to a certain extent, but also because we get a lot of rejections, M massive number of rejections from everywhere, because it's not traditional kind of predicting the next place. And we got some rejections now recently from the web conference, which, well, fair enough, you know, but uh, good luck. Next paper on next place. I'm going to try and link this to human-centered AI. From a computing perspective, the, the type of analytical and predictive stuff you're doing, it's clearly within the HCAI umbrella. But from the other communities, from architecture, from uh, sociology, I'm assuming 
in those fields, AI isn't really as established of, of, of a topic as it is in our areas. Correct. There are a few groups around the world that do AI apply to cities. One big one is CASA, UCL CASA by Mark Batty that does a lot of quantitative stuff. Then Cornell Tech with the Urban Tech Initiative. So there are a few places where tech and AI is applied, but it's kind of considered an emerging field. So much so that at the moment we are looking, as we said at the beginning, responsible AI, right? And one member of my team, she's reviewing all the literature of urban AI, so AI applied to urbanism, and she's trying to figure out what are the blind spots in terms of responsible AI. So it's about what do they discuss usually? It's about um, fairness, it's about the transparency, or it's about accountability. And you can see a picture that is quite different if you look at the pillars of responsible AI than the computer science picture where we focus a lot on the typical security, privacy, then there was a, a more recent wave of fairness and now we are getting to ecological footprint and other aspects of responsible AI. So in your own view, how do you see the connection here between responsible AI and HGAI? So let me, let me think about this. Responsible AI, it's basically the, the way we define it uh, for the company and for people publicly is that uh, let's pick the six pillars that typically are used to describe responsible AI. Then there is a foundational, probably a technical report by Berkman Center and Harvard that they identify 12 pillars. But at the end of the day, they are roughly the same thing. So it's about privacy, then you have security, then you have fairness, then you have transparency, then you have accountability, and did I forget anything else? Okay, so it's about these aspects. Now, what is human-centered AI? Okay, let's pick another gra graphic example. So let's say that you have a model, a large language model like ChatGPT. And you want to identify the risks. That's one of the main uh, idea of doing responsibilities. You identify risks, you try to mitigate them. So you can say, okay, I have this model and it's got the capability risks. That's a recent deep mind work. So the capability risk means basically the risk that you get from the model itself. So if the model is discriminating a certain group of people over another group of people, that's the inherent capability of the model that is a capability risk. Then you go out in this out, outer onion circle and you get the human computer interaction risk. So it's the risk that you have between the model interacting with humans, right? And that's the other type of risks. Then, and then you have the outer layer, which they're called systematic risks. And systematic risk basically means what are the risks of all these things interacting with each other, humans, uh, models on society. What's the impact on the future of jobs uh, of AI? That's, a, for example, a systematic risk. Now, if you take this uh, three-layer approach, you have the capability risk, but then you have the whole human-computer interaction risks around. They are the things that, at the moment, I know you talked about in the first episode about that, that, that kind of layer of interaction with ChatGPT and humans, but there is a lot of stuff to be done. So if I see hum human-centered AI, I would say 
is going to be mostly focused, not only, but mostly focused on this um, intermediate layer of humans interacting with models or machines or whatever. Both uh, me and Matthias, we've been using Ben Schneiderman's book to have the same terminology, the same terms to use. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it. Uh, uh, I read it a couple of years ago when we were doing a review. Maybe if you can do a brief. He presents HCA as, as a sort of interaction model and, and a design guidelines for AI applications. And I, I find it interesting because the type of interactions and the type of analyses that you do, they are not with the AI systems. They are with the city. And I'm curious, how do these things translate from when interacting from an AI system to interacting with something that isn't AI driven. Yeah. That gets back to our initial point where I do a, a sort of part-time research in urban informatics and then most of my research is responsible AI. So at the moment, and you will see some publications hopefully coming out, um, we are broadening a bit uh, the idea. We're really working on responsible AI on all these layers from the sort of fairness uh, and biases inside models to the people interacting with large language models to the systematic risk that AI presents uh, on the future job. So we are actually having an agenda at the moment uh, that actually looks at all that. So it's not only cities, but we are going more general at the moment. Also, because to a certain extent, Nokia needs, as any company, needs to take this thing seriously, especially because of the UI Act. Uh, they need to do impact assessment reports. So nobody knows how these reports look like, uh, how to identify risk in a fast way, because you know, this procedure, if I want to develop an app within the company, I need to go through an approval procedure and this approval procedure might require weeks if not months okay how can we fix that right for creating a more agile environment for people to build stuff all these questions are actually the question that we're working with uh, bell labs in at the moment so it's a bit more general than cities yeah okay you you started touching upon it now could could you explain a little bit more about like how your work relates to all the other stuff that that Nokia and and, and Bell Labs are doing? Mm. Yeah. So basically, f from from the point of view, of Nokia, to put it simply, Nokia will will and is producing AI, especially for network management, because that's uh, the current business at the moment of Nokia, and is also procuring AI from third parties, right? So in this kind of uh, supplying AI and procuring AI, they need to make sure that the AI doesn't present risks. And the whole AUI Act is about a risk-based regulation, basically. That is saying, if your AI system does biometric identification, et cetera, et cetera, then it's considered high risk. Then if your system is high risk, you need to produce an impact assessment report. Now, the whole company is subject to that and to say we need to do an impact assessment report for both things we develop, they are internally, and things we procure from third parties. And that's where basically our work sits. So we do work with people that from developers to lawyers to actually speed up the process or to actually develop better systems in the first place. And that... And that's actually our focus in the last uh, two years was the frustration that, and that's a more a human-centered kind of thing, design, 
the frustration that developers had with AI systems because basically what happens, and that's true for privacy and it's been true for privacy since the introduction of the GDPR. So what happens is that if you want to develop an application or an automatic system in a company, as a developer, you get a checklist or your product manager gets a checklist. And this checklist will say, did you protect the data in an appropriate way? Does it contain uh, uh, personal identifiers, etc.? So they go through that checklist and then they start the project. Now, they want to do this very same thing for responsible AI, meaning the UI Act, but that is far more complex than saying, I have a, a personally identifiable data. That's about fairness. Have you thought about doing your test across different groups of people? Uh, transparency. Does your model explain the actual inner workings that led to that prediction? Ecological footprint. How much carbon emission has consumed the training and testing of this model? All these questions that are so multifaceted that there is no way in the world that a product owner would actually uh, go through systematic through that. It's going to check the list and then they're going to start the project, which is not a good news because then down the line, before going to deployment, that project uh, is going to have problems and you need to re redevelop it. So much so that some estimates are that 60% 60, 60 of the cost of AI, it's about redevelopment. So th th there is a huge pain in the, in the design process. But why? Because checklists are meant to be compliant with regulation. They're not meant to foster ideas uh, during the design process. That, that's a, a, the ideation killer, as I would say. So what we are trying to do is that can we build tools that prompt developers to think about these aspects in a very practical way with guidelines and they start to think about fairness in their own projects. They start to think about transparency in their own project. And then they get like recommendation on how to deal with this project in half an hour. So at least you're giving ideas to developers, then they can decide whether to develop them, but they sort of know what's down the line once they do impact assessment report before deployment. So they start to think ahead of time at design stage about these problems. And that is more like supporting the ideation process for developers that has not been supported so far in relation to responsible AI. And then of course you have Ben Schneiderman and and and, and he does follow as, as far as I remember, more a software engineering approach on, on these problems. And that definitely can be embedded in this context. But the whole research of responsible AI at the moment has built tools for developers, but they've been mostly internal to big tech and not much publication went on building tools that do work for the ideation process at design stage, at the beginning of building a system. So while responsible AI and so on is a fairly multidisciplinary topic, it hasn't really grown into all of the directions necessary yet. It's sort of started in computing development, software engineering, but it's expanding. I want to ask about responsibility, accountability, fairness. These are terms that you mentioned quite a lot. There's also human-centered AI, and I'm struggling with the interplay, the differences, and the relations between this fact-fate movement and HCAI. How do they relate? 
if if we were to say that one is an umbrella term of the other, how would that look like? Oh yeah. my God, this, uh, this right. looks like the typical academic discussion <laughs> where we need to box people in so I'm, I'm not that good in that but but so i don't even know the movement so you said the fact movement uh, by fact movement you mean exactly the conference the you know fairness accountability transparency actually we we had a pretty cool paper last year in fact where uh, we say how weird fact is and by weird we said how western educated so a conference about fairness how fair it is and we discovered that it was not that fair even compared to the a very established conference guy right um which, which is interesting as an observation to give to the community but to a certain extent also the community was kind enough to actually have up our paper through so they were pretty okay with as sort of giving constructive criticism around the core issues that the community revolves around. So you have fact, okay, you have fairness, transparency, etc., where you sort of have, you know, the people who started this, I, I think a few of them, they come from computer science, but the idea also is to bring people from, from regulatory kind of frameworks and stuff. So you, you have a bit of diversity there from... CS and regulation law, and I know tech lawyer from, from Cambridge, they do go to FACT and IIS, that's basically their computer science venue. And so you're saying there is a FACT movement and then there is an, a, a human-centered AI kind of idea? Yeah, and I'm struggling with what the differences or what the similarities are, because these are terms that are very often used and mm. there are very many similarities. They're also a bit different, and I've been struggling with putting things into boxes because that's just the way I am. <laughs> no, but in addition to the, the fact that uh, you want to put things in the boxes, what's the intention of putting things inside the boxes? It's like you want to have more people talking across or? Yeah, it's like trying to identify where could we cross-pollinate things are there silos that could be broken or are there things that are worked on in both fields but maybe using different terminologies and not really being aware of each other so looking at the stuff that comes out of fact and ais as opposed to you know the human-centered ai outlets like you know cscw or kai or mobile hci any of those so there is an intersection of authors and topics but they're also quite diverse. So I've been trying to figure out what are the things that could be merged or mm. are the things that are incompatible, maybe. Yeah, I got, I got the idea. Um, I don't know if you can resolve it because the way I see it is that I, I went for, for the first time at FACT last year. So it's not a conference that I used to publish in. And then we submitted this year. Let's see if that goes through. And and we are committed to actually go. And the reason for that is the following. So in fact, you kind of have people, a few people from CSCW and Kai. You have a few people from the web conference KDD, which is more like machine learning and data mining. And then you have a few people that do tech law, so law in tech. And then you have some sort of people who I guess they would self-define as activists in tech. So you get that. Now, that kind of 
diversity. So CSCW to sort of less sky, I would say. I don't want to offend anyone, but less sky. But CSCW is a bit more open to blue sky kind of ideas, right? So you still get a bit of a paper that might be in a discipline that is not being typical CSCW. And if the idea is super cool, the methodology is cool, then you get through. But then, so once you go out from the typical computer science methodology where you have a problem statement, you have the complication, you have the proposal to solve that problem, and the proposal you try to evaluate the proposal that you're proposing. So that kind of, kind, let's call it scientific method, let's call it the usual computer science, whatever then it's very difficult to get through the review process. So and does that mean that these papers that are unconventional needs to be killed about from activists or gender studies in tech? No, they need a, an alternative outlet. And I believe the alternative out, outlet is fact, right? So I think the two things coexist together. Of course, if the big conferences were as well, they do tend as well to have this kind of parallel activities like workshop, working groups. We have a working group in Kai last year and we will have it this year as well on uh, kind of human-centered AI, but more on the regulatory perspective of AI this year. So you have activities where you can explore that, but you know that academic track records are typically evaluated on the big conferences, on the usual stuff. So you're not like supported in being weird in uh, methodologically speaking. So you need to have these outlets. And talking to a friend, he was telling me, well, thanks God that now I have an outlet as fact to actually produce this kind of work that is not, they wouldn't go in the typical computer science conferences so that my PhD students can actually claim that when they do their Viva, that's a pretty reputable place to publish and that's a pretty reputable work. So I never thought about it, but that makes a lot of sense, right? You create venues that are alternative too. So I would say they are more alternative to what you have out there. Then whether you have the best work in computer science and data mining in a conference that is in the intersection or whether you have the best manuscript on tech law, maybe not, but that's a great place to actually converge, right? With a sort of common language, because also... The other big problem once you intersect disciplines is that it's very difficult to talk to each other. So you need to have some sort of translation process. And and, and that means usually um, simplifying or oversimplifying sometimes things, right? That's Did a, I answer your box thing? or A little bit. This uh, gets me thinking about a, a related topic. So I work at a, depart at, a, at a department where sort of overarching topic is uh, digitalization. And we have quite a lot of people working on information systems, social informatics, and so on, but not from a computer science perspective. So these are people that come from business schools, or they come from, from law, they come from sociology, and they identify as information systems scientists or social informatics scientists, and they, they go to conferences such as HICS or ECIS or ISIS, where a lot of these tech-focused research, but not computer science related stuff is going, where they talk about policy making, where they talk about gender studies in, in IT, uh, digitalization. 
And this sort of sounds like, like fact. It, it got me thinking. I hadn't really thought about that earlier, but fact is probably going into that direction, but from a computing perspective. So that was just a, a reflection I made while you were answering. Thanks. Yeah. And I think that's the case, right? Because also to a certain extent, if you think about, let's say, ICWSM, the attempt there, which I'm not sure we were... I mean, 100% successful, but the attempt there was to add the, the typical computers, computational social science stuff where you actually have a, a bit of a sociology or answering um, a social science question in a computational way. That was the idea of CWSM. Then, yes, you had a bunch of computer scientists doing that mostly, but it, there was a, always a huge problem of attracting the other side, the sociology, the um, social psychologist, etc., because they are used to a different publication model. They're used to the journal model in a very specific journal, and that's how you go through tenure track. So that it's there are also the, the, the incentives that don't allow you to actually build these communities, right? And and, and that's the, the big problem. And hopefully this time around is going to be a bit easier because these things are going to be impacting our lives uh, quite a bit. I think this, this boxing discussion is that to me, it's not so much boxing people up. Maybe it is for Alan. He wants people to be in one box or another, right? But I think it's a more of a philosophical inquiry into what is HEAI. I find it interesting because it forces you to think about what do we mean by HEAI and what do we mean by fact and what do we mean by other things? What do we mean by computer science? To me, from listening to you, it sounds like we need perhaps a conference called HEAI. And the question is then who should publish there? And that's not so clear, I think. So, but, but I wanted to return a little bit, just a quick backtracking to your discussion about making tools for designers, knowing what the regulatory framework is. And from what I understood is that these regulations are sort of a filter to what you should do, a filter to what design ideas are plausible and perhaps doable. But could that also not be seen as sort of stifling the design process? I mean, yeah. it's seen as making it more efficient so that you don't come up with designs that are not going to be plausible anyway. You're not going to be able to release them. But that could also be seen as, well, then we're not exploring those things and trying to figure, okay, so how could we make those ideas uh, become? Yeah. It That's how they're seen at the moment, right? At the moment, if you have like a checklist and while designing your system, a developer would say, I'm going to check, 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 because I don't want to be stopped in designing whatever I'm designing. I need to be thinking about other stuff. That's the problem. And how do you solve that problem? Uh, the only way is to integrate something that is meaningful for the design stage uh, to prompting people, to nudging people to think about certain stuff uh, in a fast way without interfering with the normal process of developing. So that's how I see the solution to it. Making sure it doesn't stifle. Exactly. Exactly. Is that super integrated inside the current design process without adding another process on top of it, because that process is going to translate into checking boxes and not in a very meaningful way, not impacting the design very much. That sounds like a very challenging problem. I'm very it is, but it's super interesting because then uh, we actually built a tool and hopefully we're going to release it open source. And those are like guidelines. Uh, and there is another purpose in submission where we actually build a methodology to build up these guidelines. And these guidelines come from uh, the OI Act, but also they come from all the ISO standards. Basically, the ISO standards need to tell you practically 
how you need to develop fairness, how do you need to develop transparency. The problem is that they want to stay away from practically telling you that. So these ISO standards, they are not even very practical. So what we went through is that we went through standardization expert on each ISO standard, like line by line, and we started to say, okay, that's what they are saying we should do. That's what they're saying. So we went through, through these standards from the IACT, and then we developed guidelines that were through like, I think we went through five, six cycles of simplifying the guidelines. So now we can map a very simple guideline into the UI Act article, into the ISO standard, but the, the developer would go through these 22 guidelines and basically answering how they implemented or how they intend to implement those simple guidelines. And the super cool thing as well is that it's not only a tool for a developer, it could be also a tool for a leader actually approving a given project because typically leaders what they do is that they would listen to two minutes presentation they would say yeah, yeah that's cool that's nice let's let's go for it whereas a leader with these guidelines are actually personalized so that you actually have a leader answering like eight guidelines so did you think about the systematic risk that you might have of having this piece of sentiment analysis done on employees. So uh, how you're tackling those problems. And, and of course, the next step is once you have this database of how developers tend to do things inside a company, then you can start to think about can we have large language models that aggregate or can we have recommender system that sort of will personalize that to the role of the person and to the type of project that you have? So there are tons of things that you can do there that they are not done at the moment. Coming back to large language models, in the last year and a half, loads of things have changed in your multidisciplinary research. How have LLMs changed what you do? Mm. What I do, the nice thing is the very like basic application of large language model is to see, can you rewrite this piece of text, right? So that's the typical thing. And, and that adds clarity as well to the thing. And, and in terms of more research kind of stuff, I mean, at the beginning, we were starting to use to generate like ideas and things, a sort of ideation process, which is cool, but you know, better than what was before. And I know a lot of people in social psychology but in qualitative studies that they do like a lot of thematic analysis annotation with larger models at the moment which is, which is super cool there was a late breaking paper in kai last year where they showed that actually from uh, tr transcript and thematic analysis done by uh, researchers in the past versus those done by larger models and they were pretty in line if not better um, so having large language models and having human in the loop that are experts would be a, a quite cool thing to increase a bit of accuracy of these things and also to speed up a bit the process, right? Because sometimes it might take a lot of time to do the transcription and stuff. That That's what I've seen so far. Then at the moment, we're also experimenting with large language model to actually figure out if they can give you ideas of risks about an AI system. Let me give you an example. So let's say that we call it uh, risk gen. So it's basically generating risks from a description of a system. So for the UI Act, you need to describe the system in five components. So basically you need to say, what's the capability and purpose? So the capability is the technical part, right? So the facial recognition for measuring attentions 
in attention in meetings. That's a capability. Uh, that's a capability, correct? So it's facial recognition. Now, the purpose is measuring attention in meetings. It's purpose. The AI subject is the subject uh, of the AI system, which is basically the end user, people in meetings. And the AI user is the company. Let's say a company is interested in measuring attention. So if you have these like five things, you can describe the use of the AI system. And the vast majority of people so far in research, they, especially with the idea of model cards, um, they thought that you can develop a risk assessment card, let's say, based on a model. So you can have a risk assessment for a model, which is wrong. You cannot do risk assessment on models. You can, risk assessment is not done, especially for a risk-based AI act on technology. It's done on the use of the technology. So that, that's, it seems like a, a very minor distinction, but it's a huge distinction because we need to throw away all the model cards that are like, uh, in the trash bin because they insist that that is about the model. It's not, it's about the specific use of the model and every use needs this kind of assessment. Okay. So once you describe the use in these five components, then you can score it in terms of whether it's high risk or not, or is, is, is low risk or is unacceptable. And how do you do that? Well, the lawyer will read the Annex 3 in the UI Act and they would say, okay, it falls into this article, the UI Act, etc. So what have we done is that, well, let's describe different uses of facial recognition by the large language model. The large language model is able to give you 135, let's say, uses of facial recognition. And for each use, let's score it against the UI Act and tell me why you got the high score, right? So... This system that I gave you the example of measuring attention in meetings is high risk because there is some sort of, to a certain extent, biometric identification of people through cameras. So that's high risk. And the large language model is really good in digesting information and giving you the answer. So it's going to say, is high risk because of this article in the UI Act? Then you can go in the article in the annex and you can check whether that's the case. Right? So you get an automatic risk assessment. On top of that, then the large we're using large range model to say, okay, can we actually produce an impact assessment where you describe the use, you describe the model, and then you describe all the risks that you can think about, and then you have some prompt engineering to think to, to make with chain of thought to think about risk. Can you think about mitigation strategy of those risks? And can you think about benefits? And and that is something that can be pre-populated for people down the line there are going to be lawyers they're going to look at this report and they're going to say yeah that that sounds right so it's going to facilitate a lot the communication between a developer and a lawyer basically if you had this system in the middle that is going to help them to speak the same language so it makes me think about we talked a bit previously in the podcast about explainable ai and i think it feels like that's relevant here because you're kind of trying to make an ai be able to say something about some use of some other AI. I mean, how important do you think it is? What's your take on explainable AI? Is, is, is that relevant here or not? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. It's, <laughs> no, explainable. I, I, ah, uh, transparency. Yeah, transparency is one of the pillars of responsibility. So definitely that is relevant. For Possibly Simon talked a bit more about that stuff, right? But one of the Kai paper we worked together on coming up, it's, it's about showing... I'm oversimplifying, I apologize to all causers, but at the end of the day, it's about showing that 
when you give an explanation about, let's say, to a toxicity classifier, if you're personalizing for personality traits, is not that useful. If you're personalizing, my hypothesis would be if you're personalizing on uh, tech uh, knowledge, like knowledge about technology and on other aspects, then it's a bit more useful to do the personalization. So the interesting stuff for me for explainable AI is that, and you guys may know that and you know more than, than I do, is that it's assumed that explanations are always good. And at least what I'm seeing is that, oh, let's take this prediction, let's explain it, and it's going to lead to a better outcome than non-explaining it. And there are tons of cases where that's not the case at all. So there are even perverse cases in which we all know that the model has got an accuracy if we are really lucky is 80% in that ballpark. If it's 90, you already, there is a suspicion of overfitting. But okay, let's say this is 80. Then that means that 20% is gonna be wrong. Now, if you have this model, it's gonna tell you this sentence is toxic and versus another model say this sentence is toxic because, and that prediction falls into the 20% of wrong things, what are you gonna get? You're gonna get more trust in the wrong classification once you add the explanation. So also adding explanation like that without uh, thinking about when you need to add an explanation, whether it's related to your confidence in the prediction is pretty problematic in those cases. So I don't know very much about the literature, but to me, this personalization that is done uh, to explain because it's better, to me, it bothers me a bit. So, especially when I look at papers and they say, oh, expansion is going to lead to the assumptions that's going to lead to better outcomes. To me, that assumption is not proven at all. Then you guys know more than me in, in the literature. This sort of relates to the fact that in any personalization, your evaluation is always just a, an assumption because we're always evaluating on either past events that might no longer be true, or we're evaluating on some speculative accuracy. The same looking at explanations, and when you evaluate explanations, it's just going to be the same as evaluating predictions, either based yeah. on some historical thing that might no longer be accurate, or based on some bad proxy of user preference. Yeah, yeah, but uh, absolutely true. But then the flip side of that, if you think, and you guys are familiar with the Netflix price, right? Because we've been in Rexis, we've been subject to that for several years. So the idea of the Netflix price was that, can you build an algorithm is very accurate? Uh, and then we spent five years, I think, somebody won that price, I guess. And what Netflix engineer discovered is that, well, actually... The, the previous model we were using is totally fine. What changed really the acceptance of the user to the recommendation of the, the recommended movie was the explanation that was given. So explanations are super cool, but depending on the context. And I think it's, it's super, super context dependent. And you need to be careful in assuming stuff that might not be true. Yeah. Um, I mean, to me, this shows the kind of importance of HGAI, uh, depending on what HGAI might be but it shows that we need to take more into consideration and just these kind of goalposts oh we need to make it more explainable like what does that even mean or we need to do it because we need to increase trust well what does that mean yeah we need to go back to to see what is the human value why are people in cities what does it mean to go from point a to point b uh, which is kind of what you've been working on i think we should maybe think about wrapping this up yeah 
Daniele, thanks a lot for uh, taking the time to talk to us. While we perhaps haven't answered all of the questions we've had, we've learned a lot. Uh, so thank you for joining us in the podcast. And uh, I'm looking forward to all the future work uh, that you're publishing. Uh, it's going to be super interesting to read all of that. Thank you very much, guys, for having me. It was a pleasure talking to you.